3: Is there any point in Republicans working with Democrats? How long can Russia continue to create pain for innocent Ukrainian civilians? And, and that seems like Putin has a lot of patience. Things could get wild next go-round when we're trying to keep the government open.
4: Bloomberg Sound On,
5: politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. What's the
4: probability of recession in 23?
5: I bet the answer is 50-50. This is going to be the bane of this administration's existence.
2: Politicians want to win. They're all about re-election. That's the first thing we learn in political science.
5: Bloomberg Sound On with... It's Joe Matthew
4: on Bloomberg Radio. 75%
2: drop off for Bitcoin this year. That dip settling in after the collapse of FTX. What's Washington going to do about it? Welcome to the Fastest Hour in Politics. I'm Madison Mills in for Joe Matthew. We'll be joined by Democrat Brad Sherman from California straight ahead. He was asking questions at that FTX hearing. Then we get into the latest on Ukraine and we've of course got our panel coming on to talk about Congressman George Santos. While Sam Bankman-Fried is on house arrest, his former customers are suing him. Those customers and authorities accusing Bankman-Fried of fraudulently raising $1.8 billion from investors and using those funds to make high-risk bets at his hedge fund, Alameda Research, and a little bit to cover some personal expenses, too. So what is next for crypto regulation as Congress heads back to work this week? Joining us to discuss is one of those lawmakers heading back to work, Brad Sherman, who had one of the most memorable moments this year in Congress. Let's take a listen.
4: My fear is that we'll view Sam Bankman Fried as just one big snake in a crypto garden of Eden. The fact is, crypto is a garden of snakes.
2: Representative Brad Sherman joins us now. Representative, thank you so much for being here. You made your views really crystal clear with that quote. But I wonder, is this a chicken or an egg thing? Could regulation have prevented the bad actor here?
4: I I think regulation could have been somewhat helpful. But uh, ultimately, when you send your money to Bahamas or Cayman Islands, it's for the purpose of evading U.S. law. I mean, though, you know, Cayman Islands might have be a good place to snorkel, but if you choose to bank there uh, or the Bahamas, uh, you're, you're seeking to evade the very laws that would, uh, on the one hand, enforce our, our tax laws, on the other hand, uh, uh, protect investors.
2: Well, you you are really focused on protecting investors, of course, in your role with the Financial Services Committee. But some of those investors get a little shaky about legislation because every time Congress discusses it, they lose a little bit more money. The market doesn't like regulation like that. So what is your message to the crypto fans on your position?
4: So, uh, look, this is an enterprise which will probably fail, but if it succeeds in its purpose, Its purpose is to create a new currency which will disadvantage the average American. Its purpose is to have a new currency that competes with the dollar by offering one purported advantage. It's right there in the name, cryptocurrency, hidden money. And I don't think we need hidden money. I think we need transparent financial transactions.
2: Well, it's, it's interesting because that you, again, made your positioning very clear, but some of your colleagues on the Hill have very differing opinions. I interviewed Representative Patrick McHenry on crypto regulation, and here is what he had to say about the risks of that regulation.
1: He was taking advantage
5: of uh, a lack of clarity in regulation. What we have to understand in the U.S. is that we do have an open digital border. Um, and new products will emerge. And if we don't have a regulatory regime and a rule of law that is in force around uh, this new uh, technology, um, we're going to have our, our consumers fall victim to the worst uh, actors globally. And, and at the same time, not have the innovation developed here at home.
2: I want to dig into his point on innovation. Does the U.S. miss a chance to be a world leader by uh, over-regulating crypto?
4: We lose a chance to be a world leader in hidden money, which is exactly what cryptocurrency means. We lose a chance to help uh, wealthy people evade our tax laws. We lose a chance for people like Sam Bankman-Fried to evade our bankruptcy courts. We make it easier for husbands who are planning to leave their wives to hide monies from our family courts. This is what innovation is offering us, and it also offers a chance for people to bet that, well, I'm not leaving my wife, I'm not cheating on my taxes, but I want to bet that this becomes such a useful tool that I can sell it to somebody who does want to use it for those purposes and make a profit.
2: Okay, so let's uh, say let's say that folks in Washington are, are bought in on your side here, that we do need more regulation. I want to point out a scoop from my colleagues here at Bloomberg, finding out that Sam Bankman had at least four meetings with senior White House officials this year. It was part of his push to influence crypto policy and build connections in Washington before that collapse of his FTX empire. I wonder, do you- Do you think that Washington has some work to do to build up credibility in the eyes of the public when it comes to their work regulating crypto?
4: Look, our campaign finance system has been broken for decades. You've got people like Sam Bankman Fried, but other crypto billionaires spreading their money to to lobbyists, but also to political action committees and super secret political action committees. Um, And there's nothing on the other side. There's no PAC here in Washington trying to push people to enforce our tax laws or enforce our uh, anti-money laundering laws or our laws, uh, uh, our sanctions laws or our drug laws. And so you've got uh, crypto oligarchs who believe that they can create a useful tool, not just for those who want to bet on whether something goes up or down, uh, but uh, those who will find this to be a useful currency, if it ever becomes a currency, um, in evading our laws.
3: And in fact, they brag about it.
4: They say, why should the dollar be the reserve currency? Let's displace it. That costs the the average American family thousands of dollars in benefits. Why should the U.S. be able to enforce sanctions laws? Iran's a good country, too. They should be able to, to, to... if, if you look at the advocates of cryptocurrency, it is to disempower the American family, defeat American law, and make billions of dollars doing it. That's not a good product.
2: Well, I know, I know you're really focused on investor protection as part of your work in Congress. I, I wonder, to your point, is crypto itself a, sy- a symptom of a larger broken banking system?
4: Crypto is, is not. There are crypto promises to be a better payment system next decade. And I think that we'll have better payment systems next decade for U.S. dollars. I mean, Venmo and PayPal are just the beginning. And uh, the idea that uh, your local merchants have to pay 3% uh, uh, on a credit card or that you have to write a paper check to get money to... Uh, uh, to a friend or to pay a bill that's clearly going away
2: so then and, so then can you can you get the same end goal that crypto lovers talk about so often with you know transparency the things that we definitely didn't see with FTX can you get those same goals through regulation on traditional banking on on traditional American markets
4: I'm confident that we'll get a better payment system we have an excellent currency um, the uh, and one of the things that makes it excellent is that it's subject to the Know Your Customer anti-money laundering statutes. If people are able to create a real currency that is not that has uh, big gaps in the anti-money laundering and Know Your Customer statutes, they may make billions and uh, many trillions of dollars by serving uh, the markets for hidden money. That's why they call it Cryptocurrency because it aspires to be hidden money it's not hidden money yet there's nobody uh, within walk you you probably can't buy a sandwich within walking distance (laughs) of where you're sitting now uh with a bitcoin unless you convert the bitcoin into dollars first uh so it's not a currency yet you can't buy a sandwich with it any practical level Uh, but if it becomes a currency and is and remains crypto as to say hidden uh, it will make the, the needs of those who want to hide money. and the big market is the tax evasion market. The IRS says yep. the wealthy are escaping over a trillion dollars a year or roughly a trillion dollars a year of taxes. That means they're hiding three trillion dollars of income every year.
2: I, I really like this litmus test of yours. If you can't buy a sand, sandwich with it, is it a real form of currency? Let's look ahead here. Tell me what is going to be number one on the congressional agenda day one, January 3rd when it comes to crypto.
4: Well, January 3rd, we're going to be electing a speaker, and Kevin McCarthy is going to be relying on the vote. I know you're going to be talking about this George Santos guy who really shouldn't be seated and shouldn't be voting uh, for speaker uh, because he is not just lied in his press releases, many members have been accused of that, but he's clearly lied on his uh, financial disclosure report, uh, and, and, and that's a felony.
2: Can we dig into that a little bit? You mentioned the financial disclosures. What do you think Congress needs to do specifically on on those disclosures?
4: Well, we have to enforce the laws both uh, on candidates and members. And I don't think there's anybody who thinks that, uh, I'm looking at his report now, that George Santos had between one and $5 million in a savings account uh, where he doesn't even identify the bank. and uh, where he uh, claims that his uh, Volder organization is worth between one and five million dollars, um, as a practical matter, when members of Congress file th- these same reports, they're read very carefully, and if there's the slightest inconsistency, you're immediately hauled up and said, "Hey, you got to make this consistent." Whereas when candidates file, they just put it in the drawer; they don't read it at all, and many candidates uh, don't even. Bother to follow the law and file when they're supposed to.
2: Do you believe George Santos will have a seat in the 118th Congress?
4: I think uh, Kevin McCarthy needs his vote, so I think he'll do everything possible uh, to have him there on the first day. I would suspect, given uh, that what what appears to be blatant and intentional lies on the financial disclosure report, uh, that um, uh, he'll be out of Congress by the end of next year.
2: If he is not, if Kevin McCarthy does not protest uh, George Santos because of, like you mentioned, his, his own uh, needs heading into next week, are you planning to protest that?
4: I'd want to work in concert with my colleagues. This aspect of politics is a, is a team sport. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, uh, we'll have, leadership will have to decide exactly what action we take and when. Uh, But I believe that a speaker elected uh, due to the vote of someone who has basically admitted uh, committing a felony by intentionally lying on his uh, financial disclosure report, uh, that's not a vote that should count in a speakership contest.
2: And I know we will hopefully be able to have you back to talk about how you're reaching consensus with your colleagues, not just on issues like what's happening with Congressman Santos, but also of course with crypto and everything else you're gonna be legislating heading into 2023. Representative, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us your insights. We really appreciate it. Let's go now to our panel to get a little bit more information about not just the uh, George Santos situation, but also what's going on with cryptocurrency, and specifically what's going on with Sam Bankman-Fried heading into um, 2022, 2023, rather. Uh, let's head to our panel now. Thank you so much for being here today, guys. Lester, I want to start off with you. Can you unpack a little bit of what you just heard from um, Representative Sherman there on crypto? Legislation. He has a very clear view that we need more legislation. Do you think that his colleagues agree with him?
5: Well, I think he's entirely correct uh, on on many of his points. Uh, the whole Sam Bankman-Fried uh, story has done great damage to the the entire crypto industry, and and it really puts a spotlight on policymaking. Sam Bankman-Fried was a huge uh, political campaign donor. He he gave over $70 million in just a year and a half, which is a shocking number. Uh, Clearly, a lot of members were were motivated by that to um, uh, get involved in the policymaking game on crypto. And so I think we're going to see a lot of scrutiny of that. We're going to see a lot of reporting on where Congress wants to go with this. It's it's a little bit Wild West ish and so I I wouldn't wanna predict exactly where we're gonna end up, but I think it's the, the, the Sam Bakerman Fried story just completely changes the the battle space on on the crypto policy stuff.
2: And Lester, thank you so much for that. Lester Munson, by the way, principal at government relations firm BGR Group and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And also we've got Lincoln Mitchell here. He's a political analyst and adjunct associate research scholar at the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. Lincoln, tell me what you're thinking about crypto regulation heading into 2023. Do you think we see meaningful moves from Congress in this next session on crypto?
1: To some extent, I don't expect meaningful legislation from this Congress on anything in 2023 or 2024. So it's kind of easy to say to say no to that. But clearly, as as Mr. Munson suggested, the 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 saga of Sam Bankman Fried has set the crypto case back quite a bit, and it is beginning. You know, a year ago it was this kind of magical thing that it was somehow going to solve a problem that, to some extent, didn't exist in the first place. Now it's something very. Very different. It is something that is being revealed. I think more as yet another kind of scam, yet another way to people as as the congressman suggested, kind of dodge dodge uh, the authorities and kind of hide their money. But I, I think it's probably wise to get ahead of this and begin thinking about regulating it because this is one of those things where yeah. you know uh, five years from now you might play back those comments from Congressman Sherman and and it's like those congress people you know in the nineteen nineties. Uh, right.
2: so oh, not
0: necessarily.
2: talking about talking about mo- mobile phones in the 1990s i i i think that's exactly what we need to be talking about when we have this conversation thank you so much for chatting with us we're going to get to you both more later on in our show about congressman george santos thank you all for listening to bloomberg we're going to be back with more news in a bit this is bloomberg
4: This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio.
2: I'm Mattis Mills in for Joe Matthew. Russia rained scores of missiles on Ukrainian cities in one of its heaviest missile attacks earlier today against Kiev and other areas. So where are we at in the war? Angela Stent, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, told David Weston this earlier today.
0: This is a grinding war of attrition. I mean, the Ukrainians have been making gains. They've been taking back territory that the Russians took, but the Russians have retaliated. They're trying to destroy the infrastructure in Ukraine, deprive people of electricity, of heat, of water. And today, this was by far the largest bombardment in Kiev and some of other cities like Lviv uh, that we've seen in weeks.
2: And that comes as Ukraine reports more than 69 missiles launched by Russia today. We're joined by Larry Liebert, editor on the national security team, to discuss. Larry, thanks so much for being here. I want to pick up on what Angela said there. Is this a war of attrition? Is it a stalemate? How would you define it?
6: Well, it is literally frozen in place in terms of the ground war right now because of the winter weather. Uh, and it's frozen with Russia at a, at a remarkable disadvantage. Uh it wasn't supposed to be this way uh, uh as even Vladimir Putin has started to admit. Uh, Ukraine has done uh strikingly well, but the battle will continue especially in spring when uh there's more of a thaw and it's able to make and uh, troops on both sides are able to make more progress on the ground. In the meantime, uh Russia is seeking this terrible revenge, uh, trying to frighten the population into capitulation with attacks that are specifically designed to deprive them of uh, heat, electricity, water uh, in the uh, winter months.
2: Well, right. And also, we know that Russia might be doing badly on the battlefield, but they are using air power to kind of attempt to force Ukraine into submission, which is exactly exactly what we're seeing today. How is that working for Russia as a strategy?
6: Well, you know, President Zelensky, uh he has a nightly address that he gives every night. And uh, in his latest one, he said, you know, uh, they may be attacking us in the new year, but we'll stand up. Uh, he's, he's predicting this is going to go on and that the Ukrainians will continue, uh, as they so far have, uh, to only grow in their defiance and their patriotism and their unity. Oh, there are probably exceptions, especially in some of the areas where there are a lot of Russian speakers to the east. Uh, uh, the the uh, loyalties are divided, perhaps. But overall, this has only driven uh, the Ukrainian people into a, a greater uh, determination to hang in there. Uh, but it's going to continue to be a very rough winter.
2: I want to bring in Lester Munson on this from our panel. He's principal at government relations firm BGR Group and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Lester, you've spent a lot of your career after the Senate in in foreign policy-related experience, so I'm, I'm really excited to get to ask you about this. I want to talk about Russia demanding that Ukrainians recognize their annexation of four areas in Ukraine, none of which, of course, the Russians completely control what does this tell us about Putin's motivations here?
5: Well, I think uh Putin is trying to to change the conversation from Russia losing on the battlefield to uh, you know, the political comings and goings of of the Ukrainian government. That that second message, you know, what the Ukrainians are up to with Uh, Maybe folks in their population who speak Russian uh, and that kind of thing is going to resonate with Russians like Putin's big problem now is uh, that the Russian people are going to see him as a loser. Okay, are they? I'm so
2: glad that you bring this up because this is my big question. I feel like we haven't seen much opposition from Russian citizens and those who we have seen it from have already left. Am I reading that correctly?
5: Well, you, you know, it's hard to tell right? Yeah. Uh, it's not like we're getting a lot of um, uh, terrific reporting out of sure. Russia, because it's yep. it's such a difficult environment. So it's, it's really hard to know. But ha- how else can you explain his behavior? This is a man who does not really have uh, the consent of the governed in his country. He's an autocrat. He's a dictator. He's got to. He's got to run scared from the masses, and he's trying to change the conversation from being a loser to being someone who's you know, very concerned about the behavior of these peoples on Russia's periphery, which is something that might actually resonate with you know the historically kind of beleaguered Russian ethos. Um I'm not saying that's right uh, at all, but that's what I think that's what he's trying to do here. He's He's most concerned about those inside Russia who would uh, launch a coup against him, who mm. would try to replace him by by whatever means. He's on the run. and, and I think we should see it in that light.
2: Really helpful context there. Let's look beyond the United States and go global because Putin is expected to have another call with Xi Jinping tomorrow. The U.S., of course, hoping that China can be a mediator here. Larry, jump in. How likely do you think that is? How likely is it that come 2023 we'll be talking about China being this great mediator uh, with Russia and Ukraine?
6: It's unlikely. I, I think China feels that its interests, uh, included. Uh, if, if you will, to, to borrow your other guest, uh, Fraser, as, as fellow autocrats, uh, they feel they uh, have uh, made their commitment to Russia, even though even though they are not going all out in uh, embracing Putin's arguments for the war, they are not going all out in uh, supporting the war effort. They are not doing anything to directly undercut or challenge him at the U.N. or otherwise. Uh, And I think that's going to remain. China, of course, has uh, talk about the COVID situation. Of course, uh, China has its own economic and health problems right now. And I don't think they want to stray from that uh, to uh, uh, get involved uh, in this mess.
2: Yeah. And Lester, we hear a lot of talk about peace talks, negotiations. What could that look like? I struggle to visualize that given where we're at with the war right now.
5: Well, at least, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of an apostate, I suppose, with national security hardliners. Uh, I think it's good that it's being discussed. Uh, it's an important conversation to have. Uh, we're not ready for actual negotiations, I think, between the two sides. Obviously, Ukraine is taking a very hard line on all Russians getting out of Ukraine, as they should. I think that's the right position. Uh, at the end of the day, is it going to be something a little more muddled than that? Maybe. Uh, But let's let's let the Ukrainians um, kind of make that determination. And I think as as long as the Biden administration and Congress in particular Mm. are willing to support Zelensky and his and his approach, he is he is going to be able to take that hard line of negotiations and prevail. Uh, But it's going to take a while.
2: Let's bring in Lincoln Mitchell, our political analyst and adjunct associate research scholar at the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. Lincoln, you're a big expert on post Soviet Union bloc nations and the inner politics of Ukraine. Talk to me about what you're going to be looking at as indicators in 2023 that this war might be starting to trickle out or even come to an end. What are you looking to?
1: Well, you know, for the first time, And say in the last few months, a major change here is that time is now on Ukraine's side, right? They have a better chance, in my view, successfully or not, they believe they can launch an offensive to take back Crimea. And right now, that's the sticking point, right? Because the one thing, as we talked about with Putin's increasingly precarious situation at home, if he loses Crimea, he's done. So that's, but on the other hand, So he's going to do anything he can to hold on to that. On the other hand, Zelensky has also got himself in a precarious situation in Ukraine, which is that if he doesn't retake Crimea, then he has to go back to the Ukrainian people and say, essentially, look, we lost this many civilians. We lost this many people who had to flee the country. We had this much damage done, and we're going back to the status quo ante. So as far as where I see changing here is the U.S. has to say, we have to move towards negotiations because whereas i agree about the evaluation of the role china can and cannot play here ukraine's extraordinary military accomplishments and they are extraordinary only happened because of the support from the united states and the coalition led by the united states to put Mm. sanctions on and oppose russia so the question looking from the domestic perspective here is that if that support begins to waver in the new House of Representatives, and we just don't know what's going to happen there yet, right. and specifically about the House, yeah. then there's going to have to be pressure from the Biden administration to negotiate yeah. before we lose the advantage there.
2: OK, let's talk about that in our last 30 seconds here. Lincoln, do China and India not fear any sort of retru- retribution by the West in keeping their relations with Russia?
1: No, no, uh, they don't. India... India, these countries are both too important. The China-US relationship is simply too big to fail at this point. And we are not going to put harsh sanctions on China because Russia has essentially become a Chinese client. Now, if China begins to make any moves towards Taiwan, we're in a different world.
2: I love that direct and perfectly timed answer on that, Lincoln. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And we're going to be back with our panel in a little bit to discuss that Congressman George Santos's fabrications and more.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio.
2: I'm Madison Mills in for Joe Matthew. Congress gets back to work on January 3rd next week. That holiday really did fly by for everybody. So what's at the top of their to-do list? Joining us to discuss is U.S. Representative Brendan Doyle from Pennsylvania. Brendan, thank you so much for being here, Representative. We're going to get to Congressman George Santos's news, but I want to start on your priorities, particularly as part of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, that committee voting to release Trump's taxes. I got to wonder, are you concerned at all about counter investigations, Republicans going after Democrats in the same way moving forward?
3: Uh, well, first, it's uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, as a member of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, I did vote to release those tax returns. Uh, you know, there has been sort of a threat from the other side that this would create a new precedent. That's just not so for two reasons. First, every president since Nixon has voluntarily released their tax returns every single year. Uh, so Trump was pretty much a, a unique situation. If Republicans are threatening to say release Joe Biden's tax returns. Well, great. They're already public. People can check them uh, online. The second thing is, let's not forget the courts four different times found in our favor, including the United States Supreme Court just in late November. They found that we had a legislative purpose in going after these tax returns. And sure enough, look at what we found. I mean, already the the two reports one of which was the Joint Committee on Taxation. They did a report on the returns, and they show that, in fact, it is good news that we expose this because the IRS was not doing what they were supposed to do. They were not doing the annual audits uh, of the president's taxes, which they're supposed to do by law.
2: It sounds like you have a clear picture on that, but I wonder how you're feeling about other issues that are going to come up in the House Ways and Means Committee, especially as Republicans take control. What do you think is the single biggest legislative issue heading into 2023 uh, that you and your um, Republican colleagues across the aisle might struggle to find consensus on?
3: Well, uh, as you mentioned, and we talked about, I'm a member of the Ways and Means Committee, but I'm also the incoming ranking member of the House Budget Committee. And uh, as I look at 2023 and, and especially if I were to look at what I'd be most concerned about, it is the fact that Republicans from Kevin McCarthy to John Thune in the Senate, to every single one who's currently running for budget committee chair, they have all said that they will refuse to raise the debt ceiling unless Democrats give in the certain demands about cutting social security and cutting Medicare. This is dangerous rhetoric. Uh, we came very close in 2011. I wasn't here at the time, but certainly we'll all recall that then the Tea Party Congress that swept in uh, after the November 2010 elections, uh, they went about almost not raising the debt ceiling. The United States came very close to defaulting on our debt for the first time in U.S. history, which would have had a cataclysmic effect, not just on the American economy, but the worldwide economy. So that's an issue. Um, I've been active on it for years, attempting to reform the way in which we raise the debt ceiling. This issue is going to be front and center in my committee uh, and for me personally. I, I do believe, based on current projections, um, Secretary Yellen will have to use uh, what are called extraordinary measures in the first quarter because of our bumping up against the debt ceiling. And then certainly by late summer, Congress will have to act.
2: Yeah, the debt ceiling is a a big issue. We follow it very closely here at Bloomberg. But I do want to talk about Ukraine funding. I wonder, is is there potentially a danger of us draining funding and investment for something like Ukraine? Um, Are you concerned about that? Or do you think that potentially Zelensky's visit, you know, mitigated any concerns from Republicans about diving deep into that funding?
3: Well, as President Zelensky said in his uh, speech, and I was present for it in the House chamber, this is not charity. Uh, This is in American interest that we are aiding Ukraine in this fight. Uh, The United States has proudly led the free world ever since the end of World War II in standing up to first Soviet and now Russian aggression. Um, If we were to turn our backs on Ukraine, it would be a great mistake It would only encourage Putin to start further wars uh, in in Europe. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that so far support for helping Ukraine has been bipartisan, uh, especially in the Senate. Obviously, on the House side, you do have a a vocal minority of House Republicans that have been uh, against um, supporting aid to Ukraine. My concern is, as we get into next year, that. If Kevin McCarthy somehow holds on by his fingernails being speaker, <laughs> he will be so beholden to the ultra mega extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene um, that, in fact, he may be looking at a way out in terms of, of supporting Ukraine. So, cautiously optimistic. However, um, there, are the, there are the potential problem spots in the year ahead.
2: All right, Congressman Boyle, we got to talk about George Santos here before we let you go. Are you planning to object to seating George Santos on January 3rd?
3: Well, first, I've been away from the news for the last few hours, so I don't know if George Santos has claimed to be yet another ethnicity or another religion, uh, since it seems every few hours there's something new coming out about the the talented Mr. Santos. Um, I, I think the real question here is, what will Republican conference leader Kevin McCarthy do? He has been totally silent. Typically when, although there has not really been a situation as dramatic as Santos, but in other um, instances in which you've had members of the House say misbehaving, it's typically disciplined on your own side. Um, You have seen a few congressional Republicans speak out, stating the obvious that this is beyond the pale. It demands an investigation. Kevin McCarthy has been totally silent. Is he so desperate and craven to become Speaker that he will just silently accept Santos's vote and really not say anything about this complete fraud.
2: Well, congressional leaders in the past have asked for ethics inquiries when issues of credibility like this have come up. If you had to grade Kevin McCarthy's response to this so far, what what letter grade would you give him?
3: Well, it's either an incomplete or an F. It's been completely nothing. He hasn't said one word. Uh, It's quite embarrassing, actually. And you know, when you look at the Republican majority, it's, it's very thin. It's the exact same slim majority that we Democrats have for the last two years. As you look into, the, as you look ahead two years, and you consider so many Republicans will be running, especially as first-term members in challenging districts, I can't imagine they feel great about the fact that they have a Republican leader who can't even do the right thing and stand up and speak out against Santos.
2: I got to wonder on Santos, too, whether and what his committee assignments might look like. What do you think about that?
3: Well, I, at this point, I think Mr. Santos probably should worry a little bit more about the criminal investigations that are happening now in New York into him, as well as potential further uh, investigations. I'm very curious to find out how exactly his campaign was funded, how he went from a net worth of about $5,000 to a few million to the point that he could loan his campaign, three-quarters of a million dollars. Um, he has a lot of questions to answer. If you want my free advice, um, worrying about his committee assignments should be last on his list.
2: Congressman Brendan Boyle, really appreciate you joining us and having that candid conversation with us about the next session and, of course, your thoughts on Congressman Santos. Really appreciate it. We're going to continue to cover all of this right here on Sound On. I'm Madison Mills. This is Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Bloomberg Sound On
2: brought to you by Innovation Refunds. Your business may be eligible to receive a payroll tax refund. The application takes about eight minutes, eight minutes or less to see if your small to medium-sized business may be eligible for a refund of up to $26,000 per employee kept on the payroll during the pandemic. Find out at GetRefunds.com. I'm Addison Mills in for Joe Matthew, holding on by his fingernails. That's how Representative Brendan Boyle described Kevin McCarthy's bid for Speaker of the House. That might be mired by newly elected Congressman George Santos, who admits to making false claims. Among them, saying he worked at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. No record of employment form there and no record at the college he claims to have attended. So what is Congress going to do about it? Let's get to our expert panel. We've got Lester Munson, principal at Government Relations from BGR Group, and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Lincoln Mitchell, political analyst and adjunct associate research scholar at the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. Lincoln, I got to start with you here. Just level with me. Have you ever lied on the old resume?
1: No, I I haven't, because my (laughs) resume is so quirky that people assume all these things are I thought you were going to say,
2: because my resume is so good, I don't have to, but quirky is more fun. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes. And if I have, it would be by understating my educational credentials, because I find myself, you know, falling into that category of weirdly overeducated, so I have not.
2: Fair enough, right? Sometimes it actually it, it hinders you more if you're if you're making yourself look too good on the resume. What about you, Lincoln? Any any horror stories of your lying on the resume? Just a little bit, tiny lie.
1: Are you talking to Lester? Or uh, to
2: Lester, I'm sorry.
5: No worries, Madison. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking back. Maybe one of my jobs in high school, I worked for the uh, county health department, and I. I measured uh, where the wells, all the privately owned wells were in the county. <laughs> I can't remember. I think I may have I made up my title for that job just because I didn't, I wasn't really sure what it was. Uh, so yeah. but other than that, I've tried to be uh, meticulously honest in my and all of that
2: stuff yeah I've definitely made things up along the way in in like high school like things like you know um, I was the manager at Mos instead of just being like the lowly restroom cleaner because I like wanted to sound cool and at the time I thought that made me sound cool but I've never done it to become an elected official so you know the the situation is a little bit different here um, Lincoln going back to you here on this any estimation from you on what's gonna happen with Santos?
1: Well, what's gonna happen is gonna be driven by the criminal investigations, in my view. I agree with what the Congressman was saying earlier. Uh, Kevin McCarthy's not gonna do anything about this. He needs that vote for the speakership. And they also need that seat for the Republican Party. Two twenty two, that's the number of seats they have now, is not a lot. And Santos won in what was a very good Republican year, but you know, if that goes to a special and replaces him, it's not it's not a guarantee it stays in, in GOP hands. So I think yeah. they try to ride this out and but if the criminal investigation gets him and he has to step down or worse, then that that's what will bring this to an end. Otherwise, they're waiting for another story to come and, you know, waiting for the, the latest from Marjorie Taylor Greene or something and mm. people stop talking about George Santos.
2: <laughs> well, it, it's not like this is the first time somebody has lied as a member of Congress, right, Lester? Anybody else come to mind for you, a big liar that's made it to D.C.?
5: Well, there was was Enid Waldholz-Green back in uh, 1995 who had kind of a spectacular flame out. It took a little bit longer. By the way, I think the smart move for Kevin McCarthy is to say we're not seating this guy. He doesn't Mm. really need that vote. He's got five no votes. He can only afford four. So he already doesn't have the numbers. If he actually showed some leadership on this issue and took a stand, a tough stand that was actually good for the party in the long run, maybe he'd have an easier
1: time becoming speaker just a thought
2: lincoln agree or disagree on that
1: i i think the the theory behind it is right the chances of kevin mccarthy doing that is is next to nothing he's done this is not a person who will have if he becomes speaker who will have done that through leadership he will have done that by just kind of the luck of the draw he -hmm. needs every vote he can get yeah and and by You know, if he were thinking, I'm going to reach across the aisle and bring in five conservative Democrats, but he's not thinking that way. He's going to get it from the Republican caucus. He needs every vote he can get. And if he had Santos...
2: We're going to continue to cover that. Thank you so much for our panel for joining us.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate?